Margie Abbott is a Sister of Mercy based in Geelong, who has worked with groups and individuals for many years, sharing her love of the evolving universe story, creation of Celtic spirituality and the divine feminine. Many people who are actively working for change are recognising that to have some strong balance, they do not want to repeat what governments are doing. They do not want to repeat the rhetoric that um, this is the truth and this is all there is, that they want to have a very holistic approach and, and will do anything uh, to combine a balance of mindfulness and activism at the same time. With experiences in education, spirituality, theology, counselling, facilitation and psychodrama, Margie highly values inner independence and capacity development. She integrates action methods, myth, earth-centred spirituality and ritual to enhance her work. Through her books and private practice, Igniting Sparks, Margie has worked extensively with school systems, leadership teams, retreats and eco-spirituality groups. We spoke to Margie at Rahamim after her workshop exploring contemporary prayer and ritual in schools. I'm Sally Neves and this is The Thresholds Podcast. Welcome back to Rahamim, Margie Abbott. It's so good to have you here on Wiradjuri country in Bathurst. And really good to be here too, Sally. I, I'm realising that it's um, been quite a number of years since I've actually done a face-to-face -face retreat here, so it's quite beautiful to be here. Mm. So, Maggie, it seems like you are exceptional in, in, as a woman on the forefront and the emergent edge of just about every everything that you've set your mind to and your heart to. I mean, you're, for starters, you're a sister of mercy, you're interested in goddess spirituality, evolutionary spirituality, the universe story. You're a professional supervisor, counsellor, psychodramatist. You've been a principal sociometrist, author of Visit Three Books, uh, Retreat Facilitator, etc. and it goes on. Uh, each, each of these aspects of you are worth delving deeply into, it seems to me, but we, we, we might just take the whole sweeping story of your life, um, if that's okay today. And, and I'd love to begin with your foundations. If you can come back to your childhood memories, your earliest memory of, say, a spiritual experience or a religious experience um, from early childhood. Can you tell us about those days? Well, yes. I, I, I'm remembering as you ask me this question the farmhouse that I lived in in a little town called Rendlesham in South Australia. We had many beautiful experiences, a lot of outside experiences, but one that comes to mind is when I was very little, um, probably somewhere between three and four, mum called me out to the veranda because she was mesmerised by this big bird that was sitting on the fence and she explained to me that it was called an eagle. I can still remember in my body how I felt about that big bird. I've, I wasn't scared. I just felt, this is a big bird and it's as big as me. Tell us a bit more about that feeling of not being afraid and, and what was drawing you to that? 
There was something there that I wouldn't have had words for. It's all right now that at this time of my life with so many rich experiences that I could return to that experience and think, well, what was going on? And so obviously my imagination was working, my relationship with my mum, which was close, and my um, trust that nothing terrible was going to happen. Mm. I, I felt very connected that moment with my mum and with the bird. Mm. Maybe it's my first experience of even understanding that everything's connected, mm. which I wouldn't have had words for. So what was your first encounter with the Sisters of Mercy? Uh, well, I was expelled from the school I was at when I was in second year high school, which was a Catholic Sister of Mercy school. Oh. And my mum and dad then chose to send my sister and I, to boarding school, which was a Sister of Mercy school in Mount Gambier. And that was really terrific because in the little school in Millicent, like I was the only one in year nine in my mm. class. But So I was in a classroom with children that ranged from um, eight or nine to 15. Mm. So we were all in the same classroom. And so when I went to Mount Gambier to school, it was just wonderful compared because we had lots of kids and loads of wonderful activities and I learned to sing in parts and and I I really enjoyed sport we played and it was just a really beautiful few years. And so I was attracted to uh, a, lot of, a lot of the Sisters of Mercy in that school were really young and we used to play netball with them and and, um, you know, just there's a lot of rough and tough in our relationships, but it was wonderful. And so I think that's where my attraction came through. Mm. Yeah. Were they encouraging of your yeah, creativity? Well, in those days, in those days, the, there wasn't, there was, a, there was a, um, a real strong love for education, learning, literature, poetry, music. And there was also quite a lot of emphasis on social justice, mm -hmm. even at that stage. We're talking the early 60s. Mm -hmm. So that by the time I ended up joining the Sisters of Mercy and by the time I was probably 22 or 3, I was already acting quite strongly in walks for Biafra and being part of organisations that were trying to make a better world. Mm. There was a lot going on in the 60s and then toward the end of the 60s where there was so much emphasis on us getting to know um, the work of Martin Luther King and the terrible assassination of him. All of that was mm. coming through. So I think all of those different experiences it did impact on me quite a lot. So you had all that formation with the Sisters of Mercy and all of that social justice exposure and then you became an educator yourself and eventually a principal. That's right. I, I, um, I went to study to be a teacher in the late 60s and then I worked in, in schools in junior primary education until uh, about 1978 and then that's when I became a principal. Mm. And I believe there was one particular moment that stands out in that time, 1978, that you received a government grant 
all those years ago for a permaculture garden in a school. Can you tell That's us about right. that? That's right, yep. Yeah. It, it was an innovations grant from the, from the uh, federal government and the idea of it was to initiate in innovative happenings in school to particularly assist uh, students who were special ed students and students who were really finding it hard to knuckle down to learning in the traditional way. Mm. And so to put this uh, garden in and have very good people there, very, very educated in those principles, organic permaculture principles, meant that those children had an opportunity to move out into all the seasons of that year and learn from to learn about soil composting. They learnt about five different ways to compost and they learnt also one of the most amazing things was that they learnt the different sorts of soils that you can have and how important it is to grow the soil to be healthy soil. And also, as a result, some of the children who had never read were able to read. Mm. It was a just, it was a wonderful thing. And at that stage, did you have any idea about, say, ecological crisis or anything going on in the environment that might have motivated you to do that? Or was it no. mainly? Yeah. No, not at that stage. At that stage, I'd become interested in organic gardening myself. My brother was, and we, we had... My sister, we started to talk a lot about the principles of organic gardening and the importance of not using anything that was toxic mm -hmm. in the garden. And then um, it wasn't really until a few years later that, uh, I, well, I think that it was, I didn't hear about, for example, the um, IPPC until about 30 years ago. So that's it's 40 years ago I'm talking about this garden, 78. Mm. Oh, you mean the International Panel of yeah, Climate Yeah, for Climate Change. change. Yeah, the International Panel for Climate Change. I became aware of them about 30 years ago. Mm. Yeah. I acted uh, probably by 19... 89, a group of Sisters of Mercy representatives from each of the 18 congregations were invited to consider by the Institute of the Sisters of Mercy to set up um, environmental Sabbath in every state in, in Australia. And um, so I began that in Adelaide and then Trudy Kerr, who's also a Sister of Mercy, she joined me in 1991 and we worked on that through Catholic education in South Australia. In 1989. In, so what is, in the, what is it, the environmental It Sabbath? was the, Uni the United Nations declared a, a desire to wake people up to the – we're beginning to become aware of so many irregularities in the way that we were taking from Earth and we were hurting Earth and we were um, – abusing earth and we were using too many resources and we weren't caring enough about it and the United Nations felt that if the world religions could come together, which would includes all of the world religions, not just Christianity, mm -hmm. Judaism, Buddhism, 
Islam, the whole lot. And so it lasted for about eight years um, mm. before it, it sort of worked its way through uh, the world and then something else emerged. Mm. But it was very critical times and lots of people will remember gathering on World Environment Day to celebrate Earth. Mm. It was absolutely a beautiful time to sit by rivers, touch Earth and many, many people from different traditions came together for the one reason. It's interesting because now I've heard that the UN are renewing that um, that impulse to give this message to religious and faith groups um, as they did back in the 80s mm. because they're realising that governments are not listening to them. That's correct. That's mm. correct. So it's good to see those initiatives coming through. I just read this morning about um, in March Pope Francis gathered with a group of people to talk about some objectives for the next 10 years and it was so good that he was taking into account the United Nations and other groups that are also doing this. Mm. Yeah. yeah, so we're seeing a lot of crossover, aren't we? We're, yeah. And you have been seeing a lot of yeah. crossover between faith and religious groups and other agencies that are more mm. secular traditionally. Mm. That's correct. Yeah. And, and what I, I'm seeing now is... We move in. I suppose, as you mentioned at the beginning, I've, I have had many blessings in my life. Mm. I've had many opportunities, but also I've answered what I think is very deep call within me mm. to keep being aware of what is arising and emerging so that I can respond in a way that's, that's creative and spontaneous and alive, and and so therefore, when I look back over the years, I studied in the Boston and in the um, late eighties. That's just before the environmental Sabbath started, and I was introduced there to many uh, learnings that that influenced where I am today. Mm. It was so very you good. were studying in Boston in the eighties, a master's in pastoral ministry. Yes, with a spirituality concentrate. Yeah, and I was. I was very lucky at that time to have uh, each person in the group was invited to go one day a week to work with a particular group, a bit like when teachers go out to practice teaching. You have this opportunity to practice whatever the trade is. And for me it was uh, going to a women's spirituality centre which really and just really fed my goddess spirituality, my feminist theology and spirituality and I, and I just loved rituals that were happening in America at the time that I could join in with. And, mm. yeah, I've had so, some lovely experiences. I'd love to hear more about those. <laughs> <laughs> about the, um, yeah. Because you've gone from the being influenced by the justice causes yes. of the 60s to now more honing in on the feminist yes. theology, feminist yes. And, yes. and goddess rituals. Yeah. I'd love to hear. Yeah. Well, it, to me it's, it's at the heart of... The richness of tradi a tradition that's so old, like the the goddess spirituality, is so old. Like it it it, it goes back six to seven to eight thousand years ago, and the earth, or not, I should I don't like to say the earth. I think earth related rituals that were happening over through those years and down into the ages 
were actually all about celebrating the seasons, celebrating um, and giving thanks for Earth's bountiful and abundant and beautiful goodness and also to lament wherever there wasn't right relationship. So I think that's been very powerful and I've been influenced, of course, by women mentors particularly who have, you know, have stretched me and taken me through groups and through uh, reading and through other experiences such as visiting some of these sites that mm. has enabled me to be quite alive to, and integrating so much of these amazing um, years and years and years of life-giving blessing. Mm. So you've been visiting sites of goddess ritual. Yeah, but not just in another country, mm. but in uh, Adelaide after doing a Jean Houston retreat called God Seed, uh, a group of us decided to celebrate the full moon every month at the beach and we would we would stand at the edge of the shore and then we would walk in together and sing We All Come From The Goddess and To Her We Shall Return. Mm. Now, if I was doing that same ritual today, I would simply change it to We All Come From Earth and To Earth We Will Return. We're all made of stardust and to stardust we will return. So it's all one. Yeah. You would happily use those terms interchangeably. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. What is it about ritual, do you think, that we need We need this so deeply uh, in our human world? The elements of ritual, I think, that concretise a relationship with just from right from word go, I think there's an opportunity through song, poetry, through reflection, through education. There's a there's a there is an amazing opportunity to celebrate body, mind, and spirit in a way that is all connected, and I think that. Um, I've loved the idea of ritual. The first ritual book I wrote was in 1996 and that was called Igniting Sparks of Reconciliation and Compassion. I now recognise that um, rituals don't really need to be written. You just need to have some ideas and people can create them themselves. Mm. So what about some of the rituals that you came out of and, and what – would be the first time, can you remember the first time you experienced a ritual that had this depth of body, mind and spirit for you? I'm going to immediately go to uh, Jean Houston's work, mm. which I came in touch with in 88, and going to those mystery school workshops. We integrated dance, music, Myth, action, and so it was as if every one of these mystery schools, which sometimes could be five to ten days long, were packed with opportunities to celebrate right through our whole body and mind and spirit that 
we're all connected and that we're in a, on a wave of of newness that's coming. So that was in 88. So we're now looking at that being 30 years ago mm. as well. Mm. And I still meet people today like um, Paula Smith who lives in Bathurst. Uh, she's She speaks to me about how... Jean Houston influenced her too. Mm. Like she's and and Gillian Ross. Mm-hmm. There's quite a lot of people who today are working in this field and but have been very experienced by Jean Houston's work. She was she's advertised as a sacred psychologist, mm. but she's firmly has her feet on the ground about earth, air, fire, and water as lived out through these um, incredible um, mystery schools. So whether we do whether she chose sometimes for us to work through a Greek legend mm. or maybe a Celtic one, but we would always go really deep into many, many levels of our human consciousness. Mm. To what extent could you include the Christian story in in something like that, or the, the Christian mythos that you're 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 seeking it out of the other traditions mm. in this mystery school, but how could you apply the Christian? Well, I, I could tell you a joke about this. Like every mystery school that I went to and every workshop I went to with Jean Houston, she always began by saying, hands up all those people in the audience who are nuns. Mm. And then she gave a spiff about why she thinks nuns are the future of the world. <laughs> she was just incredible. And what she meant by that was that every tradition, including my own Christian tradition, fitted perfectly into that mystery school system. And and she really often would ask the nuns, in inverted commas, to meet up with her in a break where she, maybe a lunch break, where she would just, uh, you know, keep asking us to keep inspiring people mm to follow the lead of this most amazing um, work that she was, I mean, she was building on the shoulders of others as well, but mm. but she, and I really think that affected me a lot. Mm. I have never, ever um, felt um, that I've denied my Christian tradition. I've just seen that I've integrated mm. all these other things. I'm very fond of a book was written by... Um, a group of people in America called the Green Sisters and it talks about all the different ways that religious orders have worked in America to create a strong alliance with Earth. Mm. And, and just for somebody who's never experienced rituals in the sense that you're speaking of or a mystery school, mm. could you go a little bit further and, and just describe what's going on there? Well, well the, it's an invitation to move through the different levels of consciousness within yourself. So you, we always start with our, our first experience is always starting with our body and then we move deeper in, whether it be through a guided meditation or a myth, we move deeper then into the mythical layers and then deeper we go more deeply then into layers which invite us into an imaginal world that we've never dreamed possible and then finally we end in the deep spiritual world mm. where all is one. Mm-hmm. And as we experience these different um, opportunities, people, we're all affected by it. 
and I think that that's had a profound effect on my life and where I am today in terms of my being able to take risks and try different things, mm. fed by this these early experiences. Mm. And nowadays, of course, you're facilitating rituals with all sorts of in all sorts of ways and including spontaneous ritual that emerges from within a group. Mm, that's right. Uh, does does the myth and the story side of things still have its place within what emerges spontaneously in a group? I think I think what I've developed more is the contemplative stance. Mm. I think over these last say ten years, I've become much more aware in my own self, but also in others, that there's a real hunger for some quiet and some mindfulness and some stillness that doesn't involve words mm. Mm. and that and that out of a contemplative stance people are inspired and so in some cases i think with some of the rituals like an earth ritual i am part of once a month people just bring something a symbol to this ritual and we create the ritual out of it Tell me about some of the symbols that emerge and some of the, the um, wisdom that emerges as a result of the contemplation in that setting. What's exciting about this is that, and this is where I just feel that, I, that I'm dwelling in mystery, mm. almost 99% of the time what people bring is linked in with what other people bring. So there's no sense that um, a person is asked to bring a symbol such as a piece of music or dance or what about a certain topic. So an example would be that um, there's a there's was a recent earth ritual that followed a really harsh time in the Australian landscape where there had been floods and fires and for that particular earth ritual everybody who came bought a poem or an image or a song or a story that all was all connected and so it was easy then to bring all those pieces together and celebrate the ritual. Mm. And then what, what does it look like uh, when you facilitate the weaving together of all of those symbols? It really is a just it's simply a matter of inviting people to listen to one another and and why they've bought what they've bought, and then together as a group just to work out what will go where in the ritual and it just it just always comes together beautifully so just taking a step back to Boston yeah. I'm curious about you had this experience on one hand with um Jean Houston and the mystery school. What was happening in the mainstream Catholic world at that time and was any of that entering into, into were the two worlds colliding in any way? Yeah, there were. Well, I was in a Catholic university and I was studying in a Catholic environment mm -hmm. and it was the time when Cardinal Law was in office as the Cardinal in Boston and the the many, many people who went to Boston College had to walk through the seminary to get to Boston College 
and every single seminarian wore a white collar and a black suit, even when they were relaxing. And that gave me my first insight because that was in 1987, end of 86, 87 and a bit of 88, gave me my first insight into what I now see as a Sister of Mercy within the Catholic Church of Australia and the world, that the whole sexual abuse question that came has come through and Cardinal Law certainly had, well, eventually he went to the Vatican that's right. to be out of it. And um, But the damage that's been done and the incredible, oh, the incredible pain of all those victims. But those young men who were being formed then, this is what the, your question is about mainstream Catholic Church, they were returning far, far away from the Vatican Council teachings mm. of the liturgy being an act of participation on parts of, by part by everyone mm. and instead they were returning to wanting to give communion on the hand on the lip on the uh, sorry not the lips on the mouth mm. and and like it was very frightening so what was working what was working through that whole area all over america but in catholic church but particularly women Feminist theology was at its peak and women were gathering together and having sharing bread and wine and reading the scriptures together and breaking open. One of my teachers, she invited us on Good Friday to her home and, and, and she really taught us that what we do in the Catholic Church on Good Friday is so far removed from the early church mm. and so we would have quite a different celebration but it we did, in fact, gather to celebrate and lament uh, what happened in Jesus' life, but we didn't do it. So we didn't kiss the cross and all of that. Mm. Yeah. So now, in, I mean, you've just finished a workshop today on um, prayer and ritual in schools, specifically Catholic schools, presumably, yeah. um, and as part of ecological conversion. So. What are you What are you drawing on when when you're when you when you're tackling this prayer and ritual? What What are the main elements that you would like to see uh, coming up in a group? Well, do you mean about the group I was with today, or do you mean what I hope to see in the Catholic Church? Yeah. What What, what do you hope to see emerging as a result of your workshops? Well, what, what I would hope. Oh, yes, I'd love to talk about that. <laughs> what What I hope is that that people stop and pause and think before they rush off a prayer at the beginning of a staff meeting or at the beginning of a day, but begin to work with the contemplative stance with students and also with staff and do it in such a way that all the staff, no matter what their tradition is, can feel that they can participate. Mm. So there's a huge element here of inclusivity mm. and acknowledgement and recognition that there are very different and vibrant people who may not share the tradition but who still have a deep spirituality. Mm. And as I said today in the workshop, and I, you know, I could just repeat a little bit of it here, but you know, the theologians are all writing so clearly that we need a deep renewal within the church's liturgy and prayer mm. and that um, it needs to happen faster than it's happening. So take prayer, for example and the language that we use in prayer. What are some of the 
What are some of the frameworks that you would apply in if you were to write a prayer? I'll go back to the um, word I used a little while ago, mystery. Mm. So much of earth, the unfolding, the evolution of earth and the presence of God is for me a huge mystery that I don't understand. Mm. And any prayer that I pray or become aware of in myself for me, it has to be for me to take responsibility to awaken my own sensibilities and my own consciousness to the fact that presence, divine presence, is always here and that some of those older ideas that I grew up with that, um, oh, there's been a big fire, so God caused that, mm. trying to punish, or as one of my mentors once said to me, um, the gods we taught before we became conscious were, the, were images of God punishing, wanting to trip us up, and it was far removed from an unconditionally loving, compassionate heart, a God who's, if you know, I can say this, like heart can be broken within us when we are heartbroken. There's a huge dimension to your work that incorporates evolution and the story of the universe. And I've heard you say that the story of the universe is the story that kind of holds all the other stories. Of, and we were talking about story early and significance of story, but this is the story for our times. Why, what makes you say that? Probably it's, probably it's the influence that Thomas Berry has had on me, Joanna Macy, so many people in my life in the last, say, 20, 25 years. I was very influenced by Matthew Fox's book called Original Blessing many, many moons ago. And bit by bit, Sean McDonough, right back in the late 80s, early 90s was writing about the importance of the new story. So I've been very, very influenced and now I, I, I have a stronger sense that the story is an impulse now in me to just keep sharing it wherever I can, mm. with whomever I can. And what do you see as some of the results of that in, in the people that you're working with? Well, it's like in the stages of faith and the stages of development within all people. Some people wake up very quickly and are very inspired and they just go off and they have amazing energy for doing whatever they can do where they have an influence. And then there are others who get very excited in the beginning uh, and then they lose interest and then they go off and look for something else to fill them up. And for me, that that's a really honouring the, the different ways that people grow and learn. Because some people are in it for the long haul and others have a taste and get excited but then they don't stay committed. And so for me, it's just saying to people, if you're open to an idea, if you're open to some of these wonderful aspects of the story, Let's say, for example, the evolution of 
the bee or the evolution of birds Mm -hmm. or the evolution of a dinosaur and just to see that they are as important part of our story as is the now human being Mm -hmm. because we've all come from this one source. Mm -hmm. I get excited by that. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) I can see that. And a lot of your work these days, aside from your work with ritual and groups, is quite a story of activism. Yes. yes. Tell us what you're working on at the moment and how you got there. Well, most immediately uh, I moved from Adelaide to Geelong in uh, 2013, end of 2013, and within a year um, I had done um, Awakening the Dreamer and Generation Wake Up um, in 2011 in Adelaide and I recognised that Generation Waking Up, which is sustainability and social justice for the um, younger people, Jen Callanan and I in, in January 2013, so this is only like six years ago, we went to a group in Melbourne and we brought students with us from Adelaide and there were people there from all over Australia and we really worked with the founders of Generation Waking Up. And so within my first year of being in Geelong, uh, Sacred Heart College invited me to come and, and talk to the students about Generation Waking Up and I began to train them so that they could go off and and do those Generation Waking Up activities in other schools So it's like you train the children and the young adults to do the work. Mm. So that was a really – that was my first big foray into Geelong. That happened first. And then the next thing that happened was out of that I met a woman who at that stage called Jo who who was working out of the healing web and I became quite um, like connected with the healing web which had a Vitality Vegan Cafe at the front and then this big healing web at the back where you could have groups, everything from yoga right through to eco-spirituality. And I I worked with Jo to do some workshops there. And then in that same year I did a workshop for climate activists who were feeling fatigued and I used psychodrama. And out of that came a number of people who I connected with and am still connected with. And um, so now in Geelong we have uh, sustainability groups. We have – well, I mean, they they were pre-existed before me, but I've become involved with Laudato Sea workshops there. Um, I facilitated um, a gathering of – in the Geelong Town Hall uh, last year – for people who wanted to care for our common home and there were 300 people there Mm. and the speakers were all really good. One of the speakers came from the Blue Mountains, whom I think you know from the big fix. Yes, Liz Bastian. Liz Bastian. It was just a cool night in terms of the goodness that came out of all those people and and, and all the people who came who were were very energised and innovated and out of that... 
um, came a desire for some of the activists who really believed that Laudato Si, Pope Francis's encyclical, at the heart has the capacity to convert millions of people to a new way of thinking. Mm. And then um, there's the um, Fridays, persistent Fridays for the future where people are, and I've joined this a couple of times, where you go out and sit in front of your um, member's uh, office. And now I've joined Extinction Rebellion Group and we are planning some activities for next week because next week is Extinction Rebellion Week. Mm. And I think that um, at my age and my whatever capacities I have left, I think wherever I can make any contribution to awaken people to the incredible climate emergency that we're in, I would do it. Mm. I'm convinced that it, it's, a, it's a dangerous time we're living in. Mm. And you work with the activists themselves. What is it about your work that meets the needs of activists? Well, it's more that I did that one workshop, but what 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 about my what I think really works uh, with other people who like minded like myself is where we can gather to like whether it's through retreats or like the retreat that uh, we do in from Rahamim in, in, up in um, Cairns where we're working with eco-spirituality and the universe story dance together, uh, I think that, that that captures the imagination of many groups. But so many people have got their own pathways and mine is just a very small link in with some of these people but I do I'm part of a meditation group and I certainly am open to any type of gathering where we can have ritual out of a contemplative stance mm. which would be I imagine that would be unusual for most activists to have that side that's nurturing their frontline efforts here and now many people who are actively working for change are recognizing that to have some strong balance. Of, they do not want to repeat what governments are doing. They do not want to repeat the rhetoric that um, this is the truth and this is all there is. That they want to have a very holistic approach and, and will do anything uh, to combine a balance of mindfulness and activism at the same time, mm. but not certainly not to behave and emulate um, you know, sometimes there are people like recently there was a there was an activity in uh, to stop a Dani mine in, in in Melbourne, and some people who were not even interested in that particular theme, which people were gathered for, but they were just they just wanted to be a rabble group, and they really destroyed some of the atmosphere because they they went overboard. And they caused so much more um, well distraction from the real issues. Mm. So I think we just have to work. It's, it's a bit of a, a walking on eggshells, but we do have to see if we can walk through where we've got a good balance mm. between contemplative stance and activism. Mm. Is that because? <clears throat> excuse me. Is that because you see activists as 
uh, kind of worn out and overcome with their grief. Is that the sort of thing that you see a lot? Well, not really. I've just finished doing with uh, Karen in um, Geelong. I've just finished a Joanna Macy course with her called the Eco Warrior Woman. And if there's anything that I love about Joanna Macy's work, it's this, that the grief and the pain is part of the process. And and um, so I, I don't see people um, opting out because of fatigue. I just see people saying, let's keep going. Let's keep doing what we can do. Mm. Maybe that's because they're coming from a very rich motivating force within them that probably your work is tapping into. Well, I see it within the Sisters of Mercy of Australia and Papua New Guinea. Like there are so many women who in their own way are raising awareness mm. and in the Mercy Ministries mm. and like Rahamim itself and but certainly um, there have been, you know, so many movements that have occurred and particularly like now um, Mary Tinney still works really hard to to raise awareness about um, Earth's future. Being on the front line as you are of, you know, the creative and spontaneous and, uh, and evolutionary force that you've always been all your life, there must have been so many times of challenge for you in, in, in facing up to what's driving you from within um, against the tide. Um, do you have any recollections about that? Yeah, well, I suppose that's where a couple of those songs that I I may be mentioned, Eagle, at the beginning, but there's another one by Donovan called uh, We Are an Ocean. There is an ocean of vast proportion And she flows within ourselves to take dips daily we dive in gaily he knows who goes within himself the abode of angels the mystical promised land The one and only heaven, the God of man, is but the closing of an island away. And to me that's a song that uh, um, invites me to, to keep going back within myself when I feel that it's all getting too tough too hard and maybe I'm losing my spirit uh, uh, later on in my fairly early 20s my brother was drowned in a in a shipping accident mm. in 1969 and that was a very sad time in our family and then within my um professional life over the years there've been many times when I've just become so disillusioned with the slowness of the church mm. to move uh, with the times. And 
you know, if I had to say anything publicly in this moment now to the world, I would say I am part of the Catholic Church and like Francis Sullivan recently said, I belong here, it is where I belong, but I don't belong to the clerical institutional church and that the power of clericalism does not does not interest me at all and I'm not interested in fighting it. Are they interested in fighting you? I, I, I doubt it because I don't put myself into situations where I actively fight with anybody about how I feel about these things. I just feel very sad for so many people within the Catholic Church who've now left the church because of all that's been happening in the last 12 months, particularly but over many years, and I feel so sad that these people don't have a community where they can feel they can gather and be and, and be loved through it. And so I have had a lot of opportunities but I've also had a, had a lot of sadness and I've had a lot of moments where, um, you know, I've been told you can't do that because. So you may not stand out in the front of the cathedral in a non-violent action for women's role in the church and be a leader in Catholic education. So you have to work out, make a choice. So those kinds of things sadden me. So how do you stay spontaneous and creative in your inner life? Do you have any particular practices that you would do yourself? Well, yes. I mean, yes, I do because, because without them I, I couldn't keep going at the rate that I'm going still at my age of 73. Yes. I... I have daily practices and I have monthly practices and I have annual practices. And an annual practice would include at least seven to eight days of quiet retreat. This year it will be at Apollo Bay sitting for a whole day in each of the places that are written up in this book about the Great Ocean Road and how Earth formed there. Last year I, I had an annual eight days in the Grampians where I sat in the mountains and that is so, so nourishing for me. And then my monthly practices would include and do include a meditation group, a, a, um, an opportunity for the earth rituals that we've already talked about and small group gatherings with people to talk about that which really matters. And then on a daily basis I meditate and I do a contemplative walk every day for half an hour and, and I also draw every day a fresh mandala and, and journal and that is really very life-giving for me. Mm. Yeah. What do you expect will happen when you're sitting in those places on the Great Ocean Road contemplating the evolution of rock? Well, what I will do is probably read the chapter on that particular rock that I'm with 
and the ocean is going to be out in front of me and I will begin to roll reverse with ocean and I'll roll reverse with sky and I'll roll reverse with rock and I'll roll reverse with time. Mm. And then in between, as I do that, I will contemplate and meditate and sometimes I might write something but it will be still and quiet and silent. And what, what effect does that have inside of you, to this role reversal with rock? I, I'm, a, I'm just imagining now a moment where uh, I, I role reversed with a gum tree that's in my neighbourhood in Geelong and... In my first year there, I visited that gum tree probably every, at least maybe every second day. And after some while, I realised I was starting a relationship as I roll reversed with this tree being something a whole lot more than a tree. And after some time, I began staying there it's in the main in a main street so you know people could see me there but I would lean up against the tree and then I would just be there and I would communicate and the tree would communicate with me and now when I do that I sometimes will apply a practice that I've learned through continual blossoming which is called via collectiva practice, and I'll say to the tree, what are you experiencing now? Mm. And very recently when I did that, the tree the tree didn't speak like as in words, but I kept getting the impulse to look up, and when I did look right to the top, there was a, just a great joy awaiting me, and there was something that was so nurturing when I looked up that high that I realised that had I not taken the time to ask the tree what it was experiencing, I would have missed that opportunity. That's exciting, isn't it? (laughs) That's beautiful. Thank you. Um, So what about the future for you and, and the present moment? What are you thinking and reading and working on currently? to get your message out there into the world? Well, I do read very widely and and um, I've in the last, say, 12 months, I've read John Hort and Elizabeth Johnson and, of course, Laudato Si. I, I often dip into Laudato Si. I've, I've read uh, Gillian Ross. Catastrophe versus Consciousness. I've read three books of Omerku and Iliadelio. And what I'm learning from these writings is that there are other people in the world who are expressing in a much better way than I can ever express these thoughts that I that I that are going on within me. And I and I am integrating from my learnings, both from my experience with ritual and prayer, and my experience with these, with the learn the learned writings. I am writing a book. It's going to be called Cosmic Sparks, 
and it will be a book that people can use uh, inside or outside to begin to relate to Earth in the way that I've been talking about. So it's you, you from what I understand, you're writing down almost in script form uh, what would happen in a ritual for somebody to facilitate a ritual. Well, that's right. Like, for example, I might take a poem. I've asked um, a number of people for permission to use one of their poems about earth, air, fire or water and then invite them to do a Lexio Divina on it. Mm. And so that's there. And if a person wants to go out in, in outside and sit under a tree and do that by themselves, they can do that. Mm. And if they just want to use a small part of it, they can. Yeah. What would be new about this work compared to your previous work in the 90s? Well, my previous books, the 96 book and then the Sparks of the Cosmos, there was somebody at the workshop today who said to me in the break that she still still uses that book and that's so old now. Hmm. But I just thought, well, that's the beauty of it. You can still adapt even though I've, I've, my evolution has has definitely taken me to this newer space where I'm really realising with even a lot more awareness that there's nothing separate at all. Mm-hmm. And I, even though that was coming through my original books, this is now going further still into recognising that Laudato Si is just a rich powerhouse for thinking about everything being interconnected and... Nothing is separate. Thank you so much. We're really looking forward to using those rituals ourselves <laughs> in our work at Rahamim. Well, before we wrap up, is there is there something that you think that you would like to share that you haven't yet shared? I don't, I don't think so. I think you've asked me quite a number of questions. I, I've – like I honour um, Indigenous Australia mm. – especially the latest Uluru statement, I honour I honor the pain of sexual abuse victims. I, I honour um, the limitations within myself and others who've not been able to reach out compassionately enough. Um, I, I honour the initiatives and the work that so many people are doing to bring about a message that says... There is hope. There is reason to have active hope, but we need to act now. Now, mm. and I suppose you know, in saying that, I honour my own family and my my existing living family, but also that my ancestry, because I think I've really been gifted with an insight, a creativity, and awareness. I also honour honour the psychodrama community because I've learned so much over 20 years and experience using that method a great way to be spontaneous in the moment and to act in a way that is life-giving for as many people as possible. Yeah, and Marty, you've given so much in all your years and we hope that this continues well into the future, all your spontaneity and creativity and the gift that you bring to your groups. So many of us really love the way that you connect us so deeply with Earth and we're very grateful for that. Thank you so Thank much. Thank you. Thank you, Sally. Thank you very much to Rahamim and you. Thank you. 
The Thresholds team at Rahamim live, work and create this podcast on the lands which have always been and always will be Wiradjuri country. We give our respect and gratitude to the elders past, present and emerging who continue to teach us ancient wisdom for living in harmony within Earth's limits. Rahamim Ecology Centre is an ecological ministry of the Sisters of Mercy of Australia and Papua New Guinea facilitating a new worldview for our times and our relationship with the natural world through education, spirituality and advocacy. For more information about us and our programs, please visit www.rahamim, that's R-A-H-A-M for Mary, I-M for Mary, .org.au. The Thresholds podcast is edited by Anastasia Freeman.